What's up, guys? Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of What I Wish I Learned in School, hosted by Stephen Penchenko. My name is Noah Sonnenberg. I'm the editor and producer. And let me just be the first to say that Stephen and I are so psyched to have you here for the first episode. Just a couple of quick housekeeping items before we jump into the episode. Um, first things first, this is our first ever podcast um, and our first ever episode. So please bear with us as we work through any audio kinks or um, any editing issues or anything like that. Um, we are trying to get better, so please bear with us. Um, and secondly, all of the links and uh, videos and images that we reference in the show will be available at the link in the description. So if you want to follow along with us, please be sure to check that out. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into the first episode. Welcome to What I Wish I Learned in School. My name is Noah Sonnenberg. I'm the producer, and I'm joined by my host, Stephen Penchenko. Hey, guys. So we decided to start this podcast because we believe that there is a gap in the education system. And uh, my friend Steve is a middle school teacher, and he believes that he has the solution. So I'll turn it over to him to introduce himself and the podcast. Yeah. Um, as Noah had mentioned, I am a middle school history teacher. Um, and really, I noticed a huge issue in education a little while ago. Uh, the way I was taught to teach is... Here's this textbook. Here is just a chronological set of events that have happened in the world. Go over them. Don't cover them in detail. Just, just explain that it happened and don't ever really explain why it happened. And if you do, it's very short. Uh, and I thought, well, that's not right. It's not teaching any critical skills. It's not teaching anyone how to use their logic. And it's more importantly, not teaching anyone how to see how certain events correlate or play into each other. And so a little while ago, I, started watching this movie about Vietnam and I thought, wow, how cool would it be to just go over what started this war, who was involved, the details and everything. And it was like opening Pandora's box. There was so much that flowed out of it. There was um, how heroin became a problem in the US, how it was a microcosm of the Cold War, how um, what was happening in Vietnam directly translated to what was happening in the US. And I just kept going further and further down this trail and this path of like, wow, there's so much to it. And I ended up taking nearly 100 pages of notes on it. And I took that and brought that over to a lesson to my students. And I, it was kind of a trial run. Like, will this kind of lesson work? Will they like it? Will it even benefit them? And if you know anything about middle schoolers, nothing is interesting to them. Everything's boring. But they really fell into it and they loved it. And I thought, okay, well, this is... This is what I'm going to be doing from here on out. So I taught a whole lesson on Vietnam like that. And it, it was great. I did a whole other one on World War II. It was great. And then it, the next big thing was Afghanistan. And it, I was already planning on doing it next because I, when I was in college, I wrote my undergrad dissertation on Afghanistan and trying to solve what the problem was there. And so I was like, all right, I'll just translate the notes I had from college and jump right into teaching that as a lesson. And right then and there is when everything in the news blew up about it. The U.S. is withdrawing. We're leaving. The Taliban are taking over. The quickest takeover of a country in history. Perfect timing. Yeah, it, it really was perfect timing. And I was nearly halfway done writing my lesson about Afghanistan when this all went down. And what the really cool part about it was, 
I started my lesson talking about current events with it, and my last slide and my last page of notes was that current event. It was like wrapping it up in full circle. And so to go over a little bit, what our goal here in this podcast is, I'm going to be just translating my notes that I've had for these units, which I believe can be used for more than just a middle school unit and can translate to some more knowledge that, you know, the average person can understand. Yeah, absolutely. And we all get to be your audience. Yeah. And it's going to be a blast because for me, this is, this is a joy. It's, I get to just talk about the things I like to do and Hey, now I have an audience. Yeah, and I get do. to sit here and learn some <laughs> new shit. It's story time, right? Story time with Steve. Yeah. Story time. New podcast name. <laughs> Next one after this. Yeah. Story time with Steve. Well, my first, our first episode is going to be the age of terror. And this by no means is the start of the Afghan war or what we know as the Afghanistan history. For them, this was just another chapter of a long staying war. But for us, that's when the war came home. And 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Um, Got it right this time. Yeah. Fun fact, on our first take of this podcast, Steve kept saying September 1st, 2001, instead of September 11th. So hey, we're all learning. We got it right this time. Yeah. Well, September 11th, 2001 uh, was when the history of Afghanistan collided with the history of America. And I'm going to use this as our segue to you really interest everyone and to, you know, bring this topic home to us as well. Um, and so today's episode is going to be about just almost minute by minute, hour by hour of the sequence of 9-11. Um, yeah, so jump right in if Let's you're ready. jump right into it, yeah. All right. So the age of terror. Um, it is, just painting this picture in your brain, um, it is a typical Wednesday morning on the East Coast, you know, Waking up, uh, September day, weather is still pretty good. Um, people are waking up, going to work, doing their regular thing. New York City is moving, as it always is. And there's nobody watching the Twin Towers at this time. They're just your average building in, you know, a, a city of concrete buildings. I was able to find this video, and it's the only video that shows the first tower being hit. Um, because like I mentioned, there's no one just watching every building. I mean, we live here in Denver. There's not a camera facing every single building at all times. It just, if something interesting is happening, we're going to be looking at it. Otherwise, you know, blank, you know, everyone's living their lives. But at 8.46 AM, there's this camera crew of firefighters filming a promotional video. I think it was to raise awareness of, um, something about potholes. I couldn't remember what it was, but they were just filming on the street. Firefighters are digging at it. Um, and they hear this loud sound above, just kind of like a plane landing or just the, you know, the typical sound of a plane. If you're at the airport, you know exactly the sound. But firefighter looks up, camera pans over to boom, first tower's hit. Everyone's like, what the hell? What just happened? Uh, was it an accident? And for a while, everyone assumes it's an accident. It's um, like, holy crap. Now every camera's facing it, yeah, right? Because why would anyone assume that like a plane crashing into a building was like on purpose, you know? Yeah, and this by no means is the first terror attack in the U.S. history, but it's the first one that really has an impact like this because it's so well-coordinated. But that's 8.46 a.m. There's about 17,400 people in the North Tower, the first one to be hit. Um, fun fact, i got to remove the word fun, but fact about that <laughs> is no one above the impact zone survives from the first tower. Yeah, that's not a fun fact No, by no all. means. <laughs> um, so they hit the tower. I believe, and I, I, I will get corrected on this later, 89th floor, nearly at the top. So 846, that plane is, 
rams right into it. At, while everyone is still trying to understand what the hell just happened, 9.02 a.m., second flight hits the South Tower. United Airlines flight 175, a Boeing 767, jams itself right into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. The so seven- did, did the plane get, like, stuck in, like, in the side of the building, or did it just, like, bounce off? No, it completely just explodes on the inside. Um, again, there's a video of it, but we're unable to show it. Um, but... It just flies right in there and just explodes. It, it wipes out three floors instantly. And I was reading about this um, Australian finance guy that was just visiting New York that day. And he was in the South Tower, and he said he had seen from his window how the first tower or the first tower was hit. Just boom. And he said over the intercoms that they were told to stay put, that the situation was under control, and more importantly, that it was an accident. I don't know how you know your your office floor manager can tell you that a, a terrorist attack is under control or why they were so assured that it was you know not going to spread to the South Tower. But this Australian guy, can't remember his name for the life of me, says screw that and he said something in me just told me to run. Gets into the stairway and starts running down as fast as he can. And he was on the 75th floor when this building was hit. And that means he was just two floors below the second plane hitting the building. And the way he describes it is that someone took a bat and hit him three times in the back of the head. He's like, I had not, like, it was undescribable how bad he was rattled. He's like, I thought the whole world was about to flip upside down. But he made it. He survives. Um, and he says at that point, there was no intercom saying, stay calm, you know, stay at your desk. It was all hell broke loose and everyone was running. Um, so that's 9.02 a.m. It's been about 20 minutes, and a lot can happen apparently in 20 minutes, and no one has an idea of what, how to react yet. And that brings us to the leader of the nation at the time. What's up, guys? Quick interjection. Um, as I'm editing this, I realized that Steve said the leader of the nation at the time, but then didn't actually mention who it was. So just for clarification, we are talking about George W. Bush, the current president of the United States at the time of the events of 9-11. So back to the episode. In the span of 20 minutes, uh, he hasn't even been informed yet. So there's an entire attack underway on the United States at this time, and the leader of the country has no idea what's going on. In fact, he's on a PR event in Florida reading to second graders. He has, what, it's nearly been a year almost since he won election, narrowly, by the way. He barely won his first election, so he's wildly unpopular. Um, and he's in, he's in Florida, a state he won by like what, 300 votes, trying to bolster up support, just reading the second graders. Um, again, there's another video of uh, him sitting there, reading, you know, saying, doing his presidential thing. And in this image, you can see that this was his chief of staff that walks up to him and whispers to his ear, a second tower in New York City has been hit, the U.S. is under attack. And I really wish you could see the look in, his, in George Bush's eyes at this time, um, he pauses for a moment. You know, the kids are watching him. You know, nobody knows what the, what's been told to the president. And he just has this look in his eyes of like the whole weight of the world just crashed down on him. Because now he he really felt the weight of what it meant to be a president now. It, it, he, it was no longer about winning elections. It was no longer about reading the second graders. It was about being brave in the face of terror. Being like the guy that has to protect the country, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was it was a huge burden on him. Um, yeah, so he realized the weight of being the president, and 
This is the crazy thing about it. He doesn't leave the classroom. He doesn't want the nation A to see him panicked, especially not the kids. He literally finishes reading to them the book he was reading, greets a bunch of them. That must hugs. have been the most stressful, like, yeah. 10, 20 minutes of his life, like, finishing that book that he was reading to the second graders. Like, man, imagine. Yeah. You can see it in the video, too. The guy's, he's, he's burdened. I don't know if you've ever felt, like, just a sheer, like, anxiety or weight of, like, any, and the things we go through, can't, we can't even imagine what he felt. But he, he goes to that in the moment, and he doesn't react right? He just he keeps his calm composure, waves a bunch of kids goodbye, hugs the teacher, thank you for having me, gets on a plane immediately. And while this is happening, his plane isn't authorized to, to take off yet. Because at 9.37 a.m., the U.S. Uh, center of the military command, the Pentagon, is hit by a third plane. Um, the west side of the Pentagon is hit from the ground floor by United Flight 747. And We'll later learn that this was Bin Laden's main target. The World Trade Center was supposed to be that dramatic hit, but the Pentagon was his main attack. And we'll talk about in a second why the targets he had chosen were so important. But he's not even authorized to take off yet. And I want you to imagine it's been about an hour, right? Um, since the first plane hit? Yeah, since the first plane is hit. And the president is stuck in Florida. The vice president has been evacuated. And because the Pentagon is hit, the Joint Chief of Staff, the military command of all five branches are really placed on high alert and evacuated. The CIA director is evacuated and the FBI director is evacuated. For about two hours, we literally have no leadership in the country. And it's left to local leaders to react to this. The police of New York City are the ones essentially in charge of the Trade Center. And, and funny enough, for the Pentagon, it was... the. Um, the Forest Service, who were hosting tours there, that were the only ones that had any sort of leadership around. So we're in, we're completely leaderless at this point, and it's only been an hour. And we would later learn that within the first hour, nearly half the people that would die were dead already. And so it's a heavy moment. About mm, 40 minutes into the first plane hitting the first tower, so jumping back 20 minutes here, uh, you can go to the next one. Um, people in the North Tower realizing that the stairway has collapsed and that the elevators are unusable, realize that they're either going to have to make a choice between burning to death or jumping off a building. And probably one of the heaviest moments in my, in my teaching career is showing um, the students videos of people deciding to take their own life falling out of a building. And it was a conscious choice that I made to show them this video. Obviously, it's heavy and it's a burden, but... Um, they needed to understand like the reality of the choice that humans made. Don't you need to get like parents written permission <laughs> to like show R-rated like video footage in class? Yeah, <laughs> but if I ask permission, they'll say no. <laughs> so I'm just gonna go with it and kind of deal with it but later. Ask for forgiveness, then ask for permission. Absolutely. <laughs> but to understand the gravity of the situation, because 9/11, you think, okay, well, 3,000 people die. How bad can it be when you're talking about wars in history where millions die? But you know, one life can really carry the weight of it once you understand their motivations and their name and their history and all that. But people start jumping out of the North Tower and they're, yeah, they're deciding to take their own life. And it's a heavy video. And the YouTube's done really well to delete all these videos, but I found this obscure German news broadcaster that still had them up. But yeah, you can go to the next picture. Um, here's 
an interesting snapshot of the whole 9-11 situation, right? Leaderless, people are in panic, people are running away from the buildings as fast as they can get. And we have just a symbol of like one of the best qualities of human nature, and that's bravery. Like I truly believe that I'm a decently brave person, but what was shown on 9-11 by first responders who weren't told to do what they were doing, but decided to risk everything and go inside these burning buildings, especially into the trade center, people that the firefighters running with what, 70, 80 pound gear up a hundred flights of stairs because they're thinking in their minds, well, if I don't go up there, no one will. Knowing full well that at any moment, this building can come crashing down, but they decide I'm going to risk everything to go save some people. Right. And, Later, we would have about 300, nearly 400 people, firefighters that would die in this event. 400 firefighters that would go inside the Twin Towers and pull people out. That, that Australian guy I was telling you about when he said he was going down the stairs, because going down 70 floors is no simple task. And he was saying that a lot of people were sitting, waiting on the stairs. And when you ask them, why are you waiting? Why aren't you moving? They're saying, well, you know, the, the firefighters are going to come and help us out. No need to panic. They're coming. Most of the firefighters would not make it to these top floors. The building would, would collapse way before then. Wow. And so all those people were just waiting there for help that never ended up showing up? Yeah. And it may seem like we're moving really fast, but in reality, like, the next moment to happen is at 9.30 a.m. I mean, it's only been, it's less than an hour, guys. Like, we're, we're the history is, like, just crashing in on us. But at 9.28 a.m., um, there's a fourth plane headed for the White House. And... I'm going to pull up this link. But this fourth plane never makes it to the White House. Next thing we know, there's a plane in the field of Pennsylvania burning up. And we never knew what had happened. After that fourth plane crashes, we're able to recover the black box. A black box is an audio recording of everything that happens in a plane. And in a case of emergency, we can play back, okay, what was the audio inside the plane before it went down? And so we recover that black box. And I found a transcript online of... You know, exactly what had happened that plane moments before it had um, crashed. And so I'll just start reading from it. The tape begins at 9.32 a.m., four minutes after the terrorists take control of the plane. Ladies and gentlemen, here the captain says, Zaid Samir Jarrah, the Lebanese hijacker the FBI identified as the pilot, please sit down, keep remain seated, we have a bomb on board, so sit. Pressing the wrong button, he transmits his announcement to air traffic control rather than to the plane itself. So, in fact, people inside the cabin don't even understand what he had just said because he instead just sent it to air traffic control. Is that United 93 calling? The, the controller asks, and there is no response. The, sound, the sounds of the hijackers assaulting someone, possibly the pilot or the co-pilot, can be heard. Please, please don't hurt me, a man says. Down, no more, the hijacker replies. Oh, God, says the man. I don't want to die. The hijackers are heard shouting, sit down, sit down, many times. At 9.35, a woman um, prosecutors identifies a flight attendant begs for her life. I don't want to die, she pleads. No, no, down, down, the hijacker responds. I don't want to die. I don't want to die, she repeats. A loud female cries, and, and you can hear it on the tape. Everything is fine. I finished, the hijacker says in Arabic. Um, and you can hear the sounds of the hijackers rejoicing as the, as the first one had said that the job had been finished. At 9.39, Girard makes a U-turn, reversing his course to head east towards Washington. He again makes an announcement that was heard only by air traffic control, not by the cabin. 
Here is the captain. Captain, I would like to tell you to all remain seated. We have a bomb on board. We're going back to the airport, and we have our demands. So please remain quiet. Air traffic control replies, "Is that flight 93 calling?" And there is no reply. And then the transponder is turned off for a little while, and just two minutes later,、um, you can hear Gerald or another hijacker in the in the cockpit、um, switch back on the transponder, likely as a mistake. Um, and you can hear them saying the green knob. The hijacker says, "No, that one." And they're arguing about something inside the plane. It, to this day, we still don't know what they're arguing about. Did they place a bomb on board, or are they trying to deactivate the、um, the autopilot? Jarrah sets the course for the plane to be flying at seventeen thousand feet. Heard at the back of the plane, at least eight passengers and two flight attendants are able to make phone calls outside the plane as it's significantly lowered its elevation.、Um, And there's a lot of information provided by these phone calls that explain what was going on inside the plane that the black box doesn't quite pick up.、Um, and about,、um, let's see what the time is here, 9:49.、Um, a bunch of passengers decide that they're going to storm the cockpit.、Um, let's see. There's a, a woman calling her husband. And she's just telling him, you know, the typical, "Hey, I love you. I'm gonna miss you. If something goes wrong, you know, take care of the kids." But as as heavy as that is to hear, what was really important is what you can hear in the background of the phone call. As other passengers are saying, "Are you ready? Let's roll. Let's get this going." And that's a reference to them running on the cockpit. The passengers begin their counterattack on the cockpit about 9:57 a.m.、Um, and then one of the one of the Hijackers can be heard saying, "Is there a fight going on? What's going on in the back of the plane?" And Gerard, once he figures out that、um, there's gonna be, there's a、uh, people running at the plane, he tells one of the、uh, the hijackers, "Grab the axe and wedge the door shut." Gerard makes a hard left turn, banking the plane to the left, and then the next minute, rapidly pitching the plane back and forth, side to side, to try to get the passengers off their, you know, from being comfortable or trying to get them off their feet. Oh Allah, oh Allah! The most gracious and Arabic voice from the inside the cockpit says, "A hijacker says,、uh, outside the cockpit, voices are heard in the cockpit, in the po- in the cockpit. Get inside." The hijacker says in Arabic, "They want to get inside. Hold, hold, hold from the inside. Hold from the inside. Hold." At 9:59, Jarab points the plane's nose down, rapidly jerking it back up, and there are sounds of glass breaking. Is this it? Shall we finish it? A hijacker says in Arabic, "No, not yet." When they come in here, we'll finish it. And either hijacker replies in Arabic, "Roll it." The passengers make another run for the cockpit. In the cockpit, if we don't make it, we're gonna die. A passenger says. Seconds later, another one yells, "Roll, roll it!" A possible reference to them using the drink cart to try to break through the door to ram the cockpit. One of the hijackers says, "Cut the oxygen," repeating the order three times. Draw resumes pitching the plane back and forth, left and right, and inside the cockpit, the hijackers decide to crash the plane. Pull it down, pull it down. An Arabic voice says, as a jetliner points its nose down. Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. One of them shouts over and over and over again. And at 10:03 a.m., nearly at the speed of 580 miles an hour, the plane dives down into a field in Pittsburgh. 580 miles an hour,、yeah. just straight into the ground. Yeah. And so we were talking about that that bravery it takes for a, a firefighter to get inside this building, but. Talk about the people on the plane who knew that none of them are pilots. The pilots are likely dead, and if they take over this plane, they're still going to crash.、And、so they decide to go right back into it. 
And so that was at 10.03 once the plane crashed. Just three minutes before that plane had crashed, um, at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapses. If you remember from the beginning, that was the second tower to be hit. The North Tower was the first one to be hit. The second one collapses less than an hour after being hit. What was it? 9.02 a.m. it was hit. So we're like, we're talking barely 55 minutes, 56, 57 minutes. I'm not a math teacher. Uh, so it collapses. And the collapse of this building can be seen from space. The amount of debris and smoke it fills the air. And to this day, people are still dealing with the ramifications of like the ash being thrown in their lungs. It was, it was rough. Again, there's another video of someone who's at the ground watching this building fall down. And it was almost like this apocalyptic scene of like bright orange smoke everywhere because the sun's beating through the smoke but it's daytime but nighttime the same it was scary really to be in the in new york city at this time and everything is covered in ash and it's almost silent all you see is an occasional siren or the occasional people running by but it's just silent the building is just falling and that's when it really hits the reality of people that holy crap you know people are dying and they're dying fast and before we have time to react, 30 minutes later, um, the second tower has collapsed. And I don't know, it's, there's it's not much to say about it. It's the same situation as the first one. And by the end of the situation, by the end of uh, 9-11, you know, by the end of the two towers collapsing, five floors of the Pentagon being destroyed and the two and that plane crashing in Pennsylvania, 2,977 people are dead. 200 of them were jumpers, people that jumped off the building. 441 of them were first responders. And of the buildings that collapsed from the rubble, only 16 survivors were found. And here's a, here's another sad story to add to that. Um, when they sent in dogs to go find people in the rubble, the dogs were getting so sad about finding dead people nonstop, like the dogs were getting depressed, that the police were purposely hiding themselves in the rubble occasionally, so when the dogs found them, they'd be excited to find someone alive. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's such an effed up situation that even dogs were sad. That's when you know it's bad. And so, all right, the day is pretty much over by noon, right? Like, what, what just happened? And who had done this, right? And was at that point, had people realized that it was intentional or did people yeah. not really know at that point? There's a, there's an audio recording of air traffic control tracking the second plane entering New York. And you can hear the two people, one from New York and one from, um, I think it was the Boston area, tracking that second flight hitting that tower. And he's saying, okay, well, we have another flight entering New York. Because keep in mind, every plane in the U.S. has been grounded at this point. No one is flying. And so the ones that are still flying are assumed to be hijacked. And so like, all right, we're tracking a plane entering the New York airspace. The guy is like, is it hijacked? We don't know. Is it heading for another building? It seems to be. And so just moments before, the guy from outside his window, literally, at, um, I think it was at LaGuardia's airport, is like, I can see the plane nearing the building. And he's like, it's going to get hit. Boom, it's hit. They already know. What's happening is intentional. And so the day's over. A lot of people are dead. The president's finally returned to the White House, and he, he sits down and asks, who did it? Who did this to us? Like, clearly it was intentional, and clearly they're trying to send a message. And so we would later learn that it was a group called Al-Qaeda. By the way, in this podcast, we're going to go in complete detail of what Al-Qaeda means, where they're from, and all this stuff. So you know, come back for that later. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned for episodes following. But either way, we have no idea who the hell just did this. 
And to us, it's a completely unknown organization. And this was a failure of U.S. bureaucracy. If bureaucracy, the best way I can describe it is trying to walk from one room, one side of the room to the other in like a room full of mud. It just slows everything down. And every intel group in the U.S. at the bottom level knew who exactly who Al-Qaeda were. You know, there was a terrorist group based out of Afghanistan. They were, um, you know, a branch off of the Taliban formerly. We even knew who their leader was. But that information never made it to the top brass. You know, the FBI director, CIA, you know, Homeland Security didn't exist at the time. But everyone in these kind of intel groups had no idea who had, what the name Al-Qaeda was. And that was, that was almost as big of a failure as the fact that we couldn't stop, you know, planes from crashing into buildings. And we learned a lot more about this group when their leader, Osama bin Laden, posted a video online saying, you know, why he did it what message he was trying to send and who he was and what his organization was. Also, in future episodes, we'll talk about how uh, failure in the Cold War created Osama bin Laden and how this idea of Islamism, the idea of building one nation of Islam and spreading that idea across the world by means of terror was, you know, logical to this man. But to him, it's a symbolic attack. You know, the four targets he had chosen were not by any means a mistake or just by, you know, coincidence. He hit the World Trade Center as the center of U.S. financial capital, right? The world's largest and most stable economy. I mean, the U.S. dollar just used in every trade in the world and centered in one single building, the World Trade Center. And his goal was to hit that building, destroy it, to tell the world, hey, America, your economy, it's not that strong. It's not that big of a deal. We can take down your your representation of your economy. We can burn it down. The Pentagon the world, the center of the world's strongest military, the, br- the most brightest minds in military strategy, the building, just housing these people can be hit. And the White House, the center of U.S. democracy, the leader of the free world, all this can also be hit. His goal was to take down the three pillars of the U.S., the financial, democratic, and military, you know, just like this, this symbolic attack. And it worked. If you think about terrorism as the idea of like, what what it stands for is the idea of spreading terror or spreading your message by the means of terror, right? And it worked. It shook our fundamental beliefs of what makes America so powerful, and it shook it. That's why today, you and I, we grew up in the age of terror. We can literally go to school and not feel safe. I can be at an airport and not feel safe. I can be at the most secure building in the nation at the White House and still not feel safe because of something that happened 20 years ago. That was what his goal was. And if if we base this whole war of Afghanistan on one simple attack, he achieved his goal. Even, spoiler, even though he's dead now, and even though we killed him, completely screwed up the whole nation of Afghanistan and kicked the Taliban's ass, he still beat his goal. I mean, he still achieved his goal. He did what he needed to do. It was a symbolic attack. But, you know, if, if we can label the whole Afghan, or the whole 9-11 situation as good guys and bad guys, we have our champion in, in play now. And Bush is... Now, finding him in a position like we talked about as feeling the burden of being a president. But he's also now realized not just the eyes of the nation and not just the eyes of the enemy are watching him, the eyes of the whole world are on him right now. And if you know anything about Bush, he is not the best public speaker. In reality, he, he was kind of an idiot. Like, we thought Trump was kind of bad at times. Like, Bush was kind of an embarrassment. But he makes arguably his best speech of all time. And he finds himself as a wartime leader. And Bush delivers his best speech yet. 
he goes in front of the nation and for five minutes straight he's talking okay what had happened we are sad about it we are you know we are deeply troubled by it but it's how he wraps up this speech he he addresses the nation from a position of power i am now a wartime leader the united states we are now at war it's not at war with a nation we're at war with an idea and the u.s was not going to roll over and stop and do nothing about this we were going to punish the people involved we're going to punish the nations involved and further yet we're going to punish the people that like those people that did this to us so the people that are involved they're going to die but if you like those people that are going to die that are involved you're going to die and so in times of great desperation and in times of great fear the strongest leaders emerge and bush really owned up to this position and despite his many failures of how he handled this war and we'll talk about that near the end of this season but in the moment during right after the aftermath of 9-11 he had all the support he needed he had the support from the republicans from the democrats from the people from internet russia sent over you know their condolences and they were going to help out and so from this bush makes a critical decision on u.s strategy the u.s for the longest time has built its military and our doctrine around you know, fighting other nations, right? Fighting other rival powers, fighting communism, fighting everything. We're fighting formal enemies. However, for the first time in history, the U.S. is now at war with an ideology. I mean, you can make that argument that communism was an ideology, but you had a nation behind it, the Soviet Union. But this war on terror was a was a war on you know the sponsors of terror, the bringers of terror, and just and ultimately on is on um. How do I say it? On, I was going to say Islamic fundamentalism, but you can't just branch up terrorism under Islam. But at this time, it was that. Our, our limited extent of knowledge of, of terrorism was Islamic terrorists. But we declare war on terror. And even to this day, in 2021, we still don't even know exactly what that means. What the heck does it mean to be at war with terror? If we go to war with China tomorrow, we know what that means. We're at war with Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. But when you're at war with terror, does that mean the terrorist, the local terrorist, or the internet, you know, it was vague, but no one really cared. No one was asking questions. We're only asking the questions now, 20 years later, but he declares war on terror. We're, we're now shifting everything we do in our U.S. military to, to now fight this. And so something you realize on the international scale and even on the personal scale is that when you are in a series in a moment of conflict, you cannot win a war alone. If I go, if I start fighting, you Noah, I'm going to need friends to back me up. You know, I, I don't want to just go one-on-one -on -one with someone. I always want to have the backup. So Bush gathers his coalition of the willing. The United States, many nations of Europe, Australia. Speaking of which, Australia was the first country to throw in their support for the U.S. The, the, the Australian prime minister was in New York that day. And without even asking his Congress or even taking a vote on it, he immediately goes on live TV the night of September 11th and is like, yo, America, anything you're going to do, we've got your back. Man, so the Australian president and that random Australian dude yeah. were, were both in New York at the same time? Well, okay, I was watching an Australian documentary, so that's why I have this <laughs> weird Australian skewed information. <laughs> so we gathered the coalition of the willing. Um, I'm not going to name every country, but we gather our friends, and we're going to war. And we start funding... <sighs> There's a lot of information to jump in. We start funding this group in Afghanistan to start kicking the ass of the Taliban. 
ironically, we go to war with Afghanistan um, not because the Taliban orchestrated the 9-11 attacks, it was Al-Qaeda, but we believe that Taliban were creating a nation that was suitable for terrorism to exist. Remember that whole thing, if you support terrorism, we're going to kick your ass too. And so even though the Taliban had nothing to do with it, we're invading their country because Al-Qaeda is based from there. So we start funding this group in, in Afghanistan that's directly opposed to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And then a month later, after we start funding them, we jump into the war ourselves, officially beginning our war in Afghanistan in October. In 2003, we also invade the nation of Iraq. This whole, the idea of uh, the, uh, the war on terror is not just centered around one country as well. Iraq is led by a leader by the name of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein himself, again, has nothing to do with 9-11, but he is a proud supporter of anti-American groups and terror organizations. And at the time, we believe that he has WMDs, which stands for Weapons of Mass Destruction. And the thought at the time is, well, if Saddam Hussein has nuclear weapons, he will give it to these organizations and where are their targets? They're going to hit the U.S. and our allies. So we're going to go in there and we're going to kill the dude and we're going to take his bombs away. And, man, the U.S. had a bad decade because it turns out we were completely wrong about the whole situation. There was not a single nuclear bomb or any major chemical or biological weapon that Saddam Hussein had. Everything we said about him was wrong, except for he hated us. But about the weapons, he had none of them. So we get involved in a war in Iraq about something we had no business being there for. Bush would later claim that this was one of his biggest mistakes, and Obama would back that up. He's like, yo, we shouldn't have been there. But complete failure on the U.S. intelligence organizations. And it would later result in a $2 trillion war. All right. Back to 9-11. Back to the actual events of the day. Interestingly enough, fun fact, 50% of Americans believe we were never told the full story of 9-11. And even more so weird is that 30% of Americans believe that it was an inside job. So to this day, 20 years ago, we still, as Americans, can't come together that something like this could have happened to us. Do you think that's more, um, you know, do you think that's more of us being like, um, you know, kind of willing disbelief? Or do you think it's genuinely that people don't trust their government enough to, um, you know, to believe what they're telling us? I mean, if you look at 9-11 from the standpoint of the terrorists, that this was the uh, nearly the absolute best case scenario, right? And to think that the strongest nation on earth couldn't defend ourselves from a ragtag group of, you know, people living in huts and caves in Afghanistan, that we couldn't stand up to that. It's almost logical to believe, okay, well, how did they get past us and beat us unless they had help from the inside? Right. If you study the history, you can see how this happened. But from the view of a limit, like from limited scope view of it, yeah, it makes sense why they would believe that. And a big result of 9-11 is, even to this day, um, we have big, uh, we have a lot of hate towards Muslims as Americans these days. Not to say that we are really particularly friendly to them, but there are stories of Muslims in New York City just post 9-11 getting beat up, right? And then just, many of them dying, right? And from a standpoint of like human psychology, it makes sense. Because I, as an American, if I was witnessing 9-11 and seeing, you know, 
associating the buildings being taken down by Muslims, it would make sense to me that, okay, well, they did this. I'm going to, you know, go beat them up. Yeah, it's it's so much easier to, like, generalize, um, you know, an entire group of people based on the actions of, um, you know, one or two people that happen to fall within that, that group of people. I, um, you know, the same thing kind of happened with, uh, Japanese people and Asian people after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, they were literally you know, put in camps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when here's the, here's the thing about racism and the fear and I guess the fear of other religions is all of that is stemmed from fear. Mo all racist people and all people that are opposed to other religions, specifically Islam, let's say that's based on fear. And it's, it makes sense because the biggest event of fear in U S history has just occurred. It's completely logical for them to be afraid, but on not knowing how to deal with that fear, they're going to take it out on completely innocent people. So it's all fear-based. And so to wrap up the Age of Terror and to wrap up 9-11, it, it starts a trend and it starts the ball rolling on the worst events in U.S. history. Getting involved in two extremely expensive wars that, in, with including inflation and interest costs, are going to cost us nearly six trillion dollars over the course of thirty years. For perspective, it would only cost the U.S. eight hundred billion dollars to implement universal health care. It would cost us one point one trillion to build a high speed rail network across the entire U.S. It would cost us only forty billion dollars to to end homelessness for good, not per year, but total. We can completely rebuild our infrastructure, and I don't mean like just you know update roads. I'm talking gravel up, tear down every road, build a brand new one for 2.7 trillion, and we're going to spend eight point or whatever I just said was it 5.8? So that number I just said, we're going to spend that much money on something that we have no positive results for, and the age of terror starts that day, and we still live in it today. We we get the Patriot Act uh, passed by Congress allowing the government to you know legally spy on its own population we get this deep-rooted fear that we talked about before where we don't even know what life was like prior to this kind of fear where even to this day going to school is scary going to the airport is scary you know you don't know who to trust and you almost get this feeling of unease when you're in a crowd and i believe that ultimately this age of terror completely um adds to the rise of nationalism in the U.S. And, and I think it finally culminates and ends with the January 6th riots at the Capitol. This, this fear of like, okay, my government's lying to me. Okay, my government's mistreating me. There's enemies across the world and we're not doing anything about it. And, we're not, and the U.S. is falling apart. And the age of terror begins and ends with that. And so that is my unit. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think we're definitely all uh, much more enlightened um after that um yeah i mean i think i think a lot of that was was things that i mean going back to just the title of our podcast a lot of that was things that i wish that i was taught um you know growing up and, and in school and stuff and um you know i i think that um you know we can definitely all benefit from having a different perspective on things that most of us have lived through most of us that are you know in our young um you know young adult stage and um, millennials and things like that pretty much all of us have lived through this and um you know i think it's super important to just get a yeah. new perspective on that um and it's going to seem interesting when we pick this up next time uh we're not going to be continuing 9-11 we're not going to be continuing the age of terror instead we're going to take a step back we're going to talk about okay how did it get how did we get this man 
to be so organized and attack the U.S. Okay, why did he do it? How did he do it? And and that's going to have to start way back to the history of early Afghanistan. And we're going to be walking through the creation of these tribal nations coming together under one leader. And we're going to be talking about the Cold War. And we're going to be talking about, you know, the Soviet occupation and, and all of this. And our final episode is going to be bringing this lesson that we just talked about on our first episode and bringing it home and talking about, okay, this is where we were when we first talked about it. And we're bringing it right back to understanding this as not the beginning of the Afghan war, but really the climax of it. Awesome. Well, I'm psyched. And you listening to this, you should be psyched too. Stay tuned. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you guys so much. And uh, have a great night.